Now we're going to turn to God's Word, and we're going to have another week of rest from our study in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to kind of continue thinking about um, creation, continuing to think about some of what God is saying to us there. And I'm going to read out of Romans chapter 8 for us, and we've got a friend of mine, a wonderful man, Matt Schmidt, brother in Christ, who'll be opening the Word for us. Matt spoke yesterday. Some of you got to hear him share with us yesterday, and he'll be sharing again this evening. I want to encourage you to come uh, to the event this evening. Matt's going to be talking about um, love for neighbor and how we can love our neighbors through our words and conversations with them. Uh, Matt was trained at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and this is really right in his wheelhouse. Evangelism, apologetics, Uh, Those things are very much his love and his passion, and God has gifted him in a special way uh, to help us in those places. So he's going to do that this evening. He's going to do some of that this morning as well. But I'm going to read out of Romans 8 now, and then I'm going to offer another prayer as he prepares to come forwards in a moment. Hear the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Now, as Matt comes forward, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to ask God's blessing upon the word. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. God, thank you for the gift of of leaders who can help us understand it and who can guide us, Lord. Pray that this morning Matt would be given all that he needs to help us to open your word faithfully and rightly, to proclaim it with power. Bless him now as he opens it up for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Matt. All right. 
So yeah, a wonderful passage here. Uh, there's a lot that we can draw out of this. And so uh, we're going to start, we'll focus on the, the, that aspect of creation, but we're going to expand a little beyond it um, as we go here. I better pull my phone out to keep track of time so I don't push us over too much. Uh, okay, so when we consider this passage, one of the things that jumped out to me, and this is many years ago as I was reading through this, uh, is this appeal and to what many would see as a actually a critique of even believing in God in general and Christianity in particular, because it touches on the brokenness in this world. And for many, that brokenness keeps them from trusting God, believing in God, thinking that because of the suffering in the world, then there must not be a God or whatever there is, is not in control. And they see it as necessarily a problem. And while it is a problem, and certainly our experience of it is difficult, it may actually be doing more than those who would uh, uh, reject God because of it uh, see. And in fact, it may be the very thing that keeps us from being able to completely deny God. And so the way that this would work is when we consider the creation and and what we read here in this passage, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What seems to be in focus here is the the elements of the world that are broken. Many can understand moral evil between humans, though it's very hard and, and there's tragedy upon tragedy that's happening in our world. We can at least point to someone who's responsible. We often don't feel we ourselves are responsible, um, and we may be more than we see, but it's easy to point and see But there are many who can understand that, but when they see the brokenness in the natural world, uh, floods and earthquakes, drought and famine, there's something in that that they cannot grasp. It seems wrong. It seems unfair. It seems not like the world is not the way that it should be. And while, again, there are some who would see that as a reason to reject God, They're actually pointing to the fact that there must be something different or there should be there's a way that things should be that they are not. And yet on many views, many worldviews, we can't even make sense of how you would know such a thing. And so the fact that we know that the world should be a different way is actually pointing us to the fact that something like Christianity must be true. That there's a way that the world was meant to be and it's not that way anymore. And yet that's pointing us back to this need or, or this reality that there is a way the world should be. And right now we're living in a broken world that has one, if not many things, wrong. And so instead of pushing us away from God, this is pointing us, I would argue, instead to the real problem that's going on that not only leads to the brokenness in the natural world, but also the brokenness within humanity, which manifests in a variety of ways. And that is our spiritual brokenness. It's the broken relationship between God and man, and that being the ultimate problem that is wrong. 
the, the, the challenges we face in this world are much more tangible. We can feel them. We can sense them. They're much more real to us. But all of those broken, all of those difficult aspects of our lives and of our world are actually pointing us to the deeper, more significant problem, which are, is our broken relationship with God and our leading into our broken relationship with fellow man and the brokenness within the world. Uh, there's a C.S. Lewis quote I shared yesterday uh, that uh, I'm, I might be paraphrasing a little bit. I may not have it verbatim, but I know I'm, I'm pretty close here. He says that um, God speaks to us in our pleasures, uh, talks to us in our conscience, or whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. That pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And we think about if we could do a thought experiment and just imagine if there was some way that God could prevent us from actually having to ever experience the consequence of evil, that even if it existed, if he would never allow us to be hurt or never allow emotional pain or never allow any of the brokenness in the world to actually affect us, and we were sort of somehow shielded, which is sometimes what even Christians seem to desire, that I just don't want to feel any of this. I just you fix all the problems, make it all go away. Yet, if that were able to happen, if we never felt the consequence of sin in any way, is there anything that would push us to consider God, to reach for God, to shout to God, to pursue him? I would argue that no, we wouldn't, because even in this broken world and even in the brokenness of our lives, it's easy to become comfortable and to ignore God and to ignore seeking that problem. And all the more so if we never felt the consequence of sin. So if sin is real and it has actually caused this broken relationship between God and man, and that is the ultimate problem that humanity faces, and every other problem is just a manifestation of that problem, then while I don't want to get into trying to justify exactly how any particular evil is, is allowed or how exactly it's made right, the experience of evil in general is actually a good because it points us back to that bigger problem that we need to be aware of. It's that megaphone that says something's wrong, alert, alert, alert. And you see the variety of ways that humanity is trying to figure out what is that problem? How do we solve it? But far too often we want to do it in our own strength. Uh, we don't want to go to God. We don't want to submit to him. We don't like that. And so as we consider this and we consider our witness, suffering, in fact, can be a not only a refining thing for us, can not only be used as God can to, to work all things together for the good of those who love him, but it can actually be a witness to the world when we, in the midst of suffering and pain and sorrow, can have a hope that is not grounded in this world and everything working out perfect today, but that we can trust that what God has promised us for eternity will be there. And this is what uh, the passage continues on into in talking about this hope. For this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. So consider our witness when we can endure and bear up under suffering. Josh brings up the, the church in China. We think of these churches, persecuted churches around the world. And an amazing thing that is one of the most consistent things in history and in church history 
is that where the church is persecuted, it spreads like wildfire. And how can that be? It seems like the opposite. Every time that persecution happens, the goal of those who are persecuting the church is to stop it, to stamp it out. And yet it seems like with with rare exception, if any, that instead it spreads. And part of that is the witness of those who bear up under that persecution. And we need to keep that context in mind here when we're reading Romans. Part of what Paul is addressing, he's addressing a group of people who are being persecuted for their faith. And so what they may be saying is, is, is we're pursuing God, we're living for God, we're submitting to Him. Why are things so hard? Why isn't He fixing everything today? But we weren't promised ease and comfort today. We were promised, if anything, trial. But we were promised to be conformed and refined through that trial, like a fire testing and purifying that whatever is built upon the foundation in Christ would endure gold and precious silver and precious stones, but that everything else would be burned away. And that fire of refining is not only for our good, but is part of that witness to the world. Think of the Apostle Peter and the witness of his life and, and, and the change, the chain of changes that he went through. And part of what gives me great confidence in trusting the New Testament, in trusting the teaching of the apostles, because consider that our trust and faith in Jesus, which is where we need to be grounded, is, is that's our center. That's where we're grounded. That's the foundation. But we're relying on the disciples, the apostles that he chose to be his messengers to the world. We're relying on their testimony of the things he taught, the things he did. And so a legitimate question to ask is, well, why should we believe them? Why would you trust them? What if they were making it up? And as you consider witnessing to those in your sphere of influence, this may be an idea in their head. When they think of the Christian church, they may be thinking of modern times or throughout history at times when, unfortunately, those who claim to have represented Christ have done a poor job in doing so. And it has become about power and wealth and control, not about humility and obedience to Christ and a willingness to suffer and sacrifice and care for others. And so they'll say, well, why can we trust any of it? And they'll go all the way back. And I, I know of people who think that the apostles were just like whatever bad idea of Christians they have today or through history. And they say, well, yeah, of course they, they did this because they were willing to, you know, make this all up because they got so much power and control and money and they have no idea of the reality of the lives of those men and of those women who first followed Christ and the sacrifice that they made to proclaim the message of Christ. But I get even greater confidence when I consider the, the trajectory of Peter. So consider the fact that first when Peter's chosen and Jesus is going around and teaching and Peter and the other apostles are trying to understand what he's saying, trying to understand who he is. They're actually not getting it very well. And there are people that Jesus is interacting with who should not be, uh, the, they're not the ideal uh, people for uh, starting a new movement out of Judaism. And yet they're the people Jesus is identifying, a Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman, uh, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. These people 
seem to understand who Jesus is better than his own disciples that follow him day after day. They're struggling because Jesus is not quite fitting the paradigm that most of the Jews had for what the Messiah was going to be. So they're, they're seeing it, but they're not seeing it, and they're wrestling. And finally, it gets to the point where Jesus challenges the disciples and Peter speaking for them and saying, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter finally seems to make this accurate proclamation of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And Jesus then says, correct, now here's what's going to happen. I'm actually going to die. And that same Peter that just accurately identified who Jesus is, seemingly uh, to the point where you should just trust whatever Jesus tells you, after Jesus tells him something, immediately says, no, 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 that can't happen. You're not going to die. In fact, I'll, I'll die to keep you from dying. Okay? So Peter, who, who had accurately identified Jesus, now is denying that what Jesus is saying is happened is going to happen and proclaiming a boldness, which we'll get to, we know doesn't quite bear out so well. Now, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he seemed like he figured it out. Here he is. He's got it. And now he's off again. And that same Peter that said he was going to die defending Jesus not long after is terrified of a woman who's claiming he just was even associated with Jesus. And we, ha we miss a lot of the cultural context here. We really have to understand the context of what's going on, what Jewish culture was like at this time. But the significance of Peter, who's supposedly going to be this leader of this new movement, being terrified of a woman associating him with Jesus is a big deal. Uh, he's not terrified of a Roman centurion who's about to skewer him. No, he's terrified of a woman who's just saying, wait, aren't, you were with him, weren't you? And three times Peter denies Jesus, right? So now he's failed. And yet that same Peter who was terrified of a woman even associating him with Jesus and who goes into hiding when Jesus is being crucified and after, only a few weeks later, 40 you know, plus days later, after having seen and interacted with the risen Jesus, this same Peter who was afraid to be associated with him is now willing to go out and proclaim the message of Jesus, proclaim that he is the Messiah to the point of being beaten and persecuted and saying that he cannot believe that Jesus found him worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So this schizophrenia seemingly of Peter where he's, he's figuring it out and then he's missing it and then he's, he's boldly saying he's going to defend Jesus, then he's denying Jesus, now he's back out. That gives me great confidence that Peter's really telling us what happened, that we have what actually happened, because there's no way you would include all of those details if you're making this up. There's no way you would make yourself look like a fool who wasn't figuring it out as well as a, a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a Samaritan woman, a Roman centurion. You would make yourself look like a hero, but he doesn't. He, at times, is a hero, and at times, he's a fool. He's a real person. We have what really actually happened. And it's that witness that gave such credibility to the early Christian movement that these people who followed Jesus were willing to suffer and even die for the cause of Christ. But why were they able to do so? It brings us back around to this idea of hope. 
to understand Christianity, we have to understand a biblical definition of faith and hope, not a worldly one, not a confused one that we may find in the church today. And faith is not wish or uh, believing something that we don't really have a basis in. It's not believing where there's no evidence, but it's taking what we can know and trusting Jesus when he goes beyond it. It's knowing that Jesus can perform miracles. He can raise the dead, that he was raised from the dead. And because of that, trusting that when he says you will be with me in paradise, that your sin is forgiven, that I am the way, the truth and the life. We trust him in those things that we have no way to verify. But the people who followed him day in and day out had had every way to verify that he could do a miracle. They just had to watch. And yet the teaching that he, he gives beyond those miracles, we have to take by faith. But it's a faith that's built upon trusting in his authority, which has been established by things that can be seen. So this brings us to hope for, well, if hope is not what we see, then what is it? Well, hope is the guarantee that what God has promised in the future will come to pass. So if you would have pressed Peter or any of the disciples or any of the early Christians, why is it that you're willing to bear up under this? Why are you willing to die for this Jesus? They would say, because he has promised us eternity with him. He has promised that this this suffering now, this this uh, in verse 18, this suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be to revealed. That we can bear up and endure this suffering because we have an eternity with God that will follow. And that he's using the very difficult things in our life that in part we'd want to get rid of to make us who we need to be to truly enjoy him forever. And that in this life we have the opportunity to day by day become more and more and more like him Thus, that we can enjoy him when we are in his presence all the more. That we're becoming more like him and gaining a greater capacity to enjoy him. And so hope is not a wishful thinking of what we would like in the future, but it's trusting in the guarantee that God has given. If he has promised something, he will deliver. And so the Roman, uh, the, the Christians in Rome that Paul is writing to can bear up under the suffering that they're facing because God did not promise them an easy tomorrow or an easy today. He's promised them a life with him in eternity. And when we have our eyes set on that eternity with God, we can endure the day to day struggles. And it's not easy, even in our in our simple struggles of life. Being parents, being siblings, um, being children, that life has its challenges. But we view those challenges in light of eternity and they become not as overwhelming. We don't also, we don't operate on our own. We're not on our own in this. We have our community. We have the family of God. We have our families. And so we do this in community, in unity, trusting in the one who has brought us together, who has adopted us as sons. And we also, along with the creation, are waiting for this moment in history where God will do what he has promised to do. But now, in this moment, we are called to be his ambassadors. Until that day when he does bring that judgment. When he does set all things right, when he does renew this world and redeem it and the new heavens and the new earths are established 
Until that day, we are his ambassadors. And so look for the opportunities he's giving you to be conformed to his image, to be his representatives to those who are still lost in their brokenness, who see the brokenness in the world and they know that it's a problem. They know that this is not the way the world should be, but they have no idea how to make sense of it and they have no solution for how to solve it. And they're desperately through politics or movements or activism, desperately trying to set everything right, to make utopia on earth. But it is a fool's errand. It will not work. And where they end up most often is in despair because it doesn't work. It doesn't get better or not better enough. No matter what we fix, there's always something else broken. And so we are witnesses. We are ambassadors in this world called to be a part of fixing what we can. It's not to abandon. The call for Christians is not to abandon trying to make the world better. But we make it better not as though that is the only way peace and joy and happiness will be attained, but knowing that even in the midst of fixing these things in this world that we can, ultimately we will never have peace. We will never have true joy, true contentment, unless our eyes are set on something beyond this world. So you, believer, have an opportunity to be a witness to those who desperately need this message of hope. You have an opportunity to, to speak the truth in love to those whom God has given you. You have an opportunity to show your care for this world, and yet it's a care that's not merely grounded in this world, but grounded in a world beyond. And there will be those to whom that will be appealing. So think about your witness. Think about how you can uh, grow more and more to be like Christ day to day. And keep fixed in your mind when you're in the midst of trial that you are not alone. You have Christ. You have the Spirit. You have community. And that God will use that very suffering for your good and the good of those around you. And that is a hope that the world needs to see. So let us be encouraged in that. Let me close in prayer. Father, in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of pain and suffering and sorrow and hardship, and yet also in the midst of a world with beauty, with majesty, with beauty within even humanity, God, in this world that seems to be schizophrenic, with both beauty and brokenness, you in both things are calling us to you. You are calling those even who are lost to you, revealing yourself in the created world, revealing the reality of the spiritual brokenness through the physical brokenness in the world, through the spiritual brokenness in humanity, the emotional pain and the trauma that it brings. So God, may everyone here in this community, may you use them to be lights to a dark and dying world. May you make them ambassadors of light, ambassadors of truth, ambassadors of hope. That they would be an encouragement to those who are seeking something they don't even understand. Who are desperate to get out of whatever they're in but don't know where to go. Give these believers the opportunity to share, to represent you faithfully and well. To represent the hope of the gospel. And that people would see in their action and in their words and in their deeds something different that they can't understand, they can't explain, but they see it. And may that give opportunities to share about the hope that is in Christ. 
For we know that ultimately, no peace, no ultimate contentment will be had apart from Christ. And that's a good thing, God. Remind us of that. That there are joys and there are good things in this world that point people, but ultimately, contentment outside of Christ would not be good. And so we, we pray for those opportunities. Help us to be your ambassadors. Convict us. Give us your spirit, the strength to endure, the strength to witness. Help us in these things. We pray all this in Christ. Amen.